The following sermon podcast is a glimpse into the community of Central Bible Church, where we strive to welcome everyone into Jesus' life. We hope that you can join us for this Sunday service as we gather together seeking to live in and for Christ. transitioning a little bit um, into our sermon, and so I'm going to start by just uh, reading our passage for this morning before Andrew comes up. So this is Ephesians 4, 1 through 6. As a prisoner for the Lord, then, I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you have received. Be completely humble and gentle. Be patient, bearing with one another in love. Make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to one hope when you were called. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. Amen. Thanks, Marissa. Good morning, church. Would you pray with me as we begin? Father God, we thank you so much for the little ones that are with us this morning. Um, Would you help us to... um, yeah, just enjoy their presence, the, the sounds, the, the rustling around, God, we're thankful for them, that they get to be a part of a, uh, this, this time together this morning, and um, Jesus, I pray that you'd help us now to, to hear from you in your word, Holy Spirit, be with us. We ask that you would help us to sense what you're trying to teach us, in particular, for each of our lives. We love you, we thank you, in Jesus' name. Amen. My name is Andrew. I'm one of the pastors here at Central Bible Church. It's good to be with you. Um, I'm going to be preaching a shortened sermon, hopefully, um, this morning. And then after about 20, 30 minutes of teaching, Mackenzie is going to come up and we're going to invite all the little ones up during that time. And she's going to do kind of a cool story time with the kids for about 10 minutes. So that's kind of where we're headed this morning. It's a unique service. If anyone grew up watching the Power Rangers, this just feels like Power Rangers right now. I don't know why. The lights feel so Power Rangers to me. It's awesome. So if you're just joining us, we started a new series in the book of Ephesians two weeks ago. Uh, We are spending the bulk of our time, though, in chapter four, and that's going to start today. The last two weeks have been overview. Oshawa gave an overview of the first half of Paul's letter. It's a six chapter book that Paul wrote to the church or churches in Ephesus. And so Oshawa has given us about two weeks of overview. He's done a really good job. It's hard to do that. And here's the the basic gist of the overview that we've received these last couple of weeks. Um, First is that the, the gospel is centered around two primary realities. The first is gospel power. The multifaceted reality of the good news of what Jesus has accomplished for us on the cross. This is gospel power. What Jesus has done for us. And so we must think about and mind the depths of the gospel of what God has done for us in Christ on the cross in his life, death, burial, and resurrection. We need to think of those realities often. And it's through mining the depths of the gospel that we begin to change. But it's not just a mental ascent that we're called to. 
Because the second thing that we're called to is gospel works. The reality that because of the good news, those in Christ have good works to fulfill. We have good works that God has in advance prepared for us to walk into. We need to be continually then on the lookout for what opportunities God is giving each one of us to walk in those good works. What things, what opportunities has God given us to live out the gospel in this world? So gospel power and gospel works. And so the transition between the two halves of the book of Ephesians, the first three chapters and the latter three, is here at the end of chapter three. So I actually want to read chapter three, verses 14 through 21. I'll put it up on the screen for us. Nope, that would be the scripture reading. Boom. There it is. Read along with me this section as Paul transitions in the book of Ephesians. He says, For this reason I kneel before the Father, from whom his whole family in heaven and on earth derives its name. I pray that out of his glorious riches he may strengthen you with power through his Spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. And I pray that you, being rooted and established in love, may have power together with all the saints to grasp how wide, how long, and how high and deep is the love of Christ. And to know that this love that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. Now to him who is able to do immeasurably more than we can ask or imagine, according to his power that is at work within us, To him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. Notice the section there. I don't even think you can tell. Can you see the words that are bold and underlined? Okay. Power and spirit. I pray that out of his glorious riches, he may strengthen you through or with power through his spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. So Paul transitions out of the first three chapters of Ephesians, which is this kind of incredible theological discourse. It's a doctrine. It's here's what God has done for you. Here's the gospel, right? And the second three chapters of Ephesians are going to be focused on Christian living. Chapter 4 and on are really Paul's attempt at applying the theology that we just learned in the first three chapters. It's, here's the reality of what Christ has accomplished in you and for you through the gospel. And now, it's here how that, how that reality ought to then affect the rest of our lives. How we live. So notice those highlighted words, power and spirit. Paul bridges the two sections of the book reminding us of the power of the gospel and the power we have through the Holy Spirit. So in order to grow into the fullness of Christ, we have to remind ourselves of the gospel often. We have to walk in good works, right? That's what we learned from Oshawa these last two weeks. And God has, we also have to walk in those works by the power of the Spirit. We are to intentionally seek the presence of Jesus in order to see the opportunities that God is giving us to walk in those good works. So, that's the transition that Paul gives us. Now, let's look at our passage that Marissa read 
I want to reread those first three verses. That's where we're going to spend the bulk of our time this morning with a shortened message. It's hard to, to preach all of the passage. So read the, the last three verses in your own time and you will enjoy them, I promise. Paul says, As a prisoner for the Lord, then, I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you have received. Be completely humble and gentle. Just be humble. Just be gentle. Easy. Be patient. Bearing with one another in love. Make every effort to keep the bond, rather to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. So Paul starts off by pulling the old imprisonment card. He's saying, look, if my life of living worthy, worthily of the calling I've been given means anything to you, and then he kind of whispers, you know, by the way, I'm, I'm imprisoned, so I kind of have done a good job at this, so you should probably listen to what I'm saying. If anything matters to you in that reality, then hear what I'm saying. So he starts off by talking about living a life worthy of the calling with which you've been given, which is a direct correlation back to the verses that Oshua preached on in chapter 2, verse 10, and the good works that God has called us to walk into that he's prepared for us. And then he says, be completely humble and gentle, be patient, bearing with one another in love. If only it were so easy. So there's two kinds of calling that Paul has for us. He has, we, we often think of calling in terms of vocation, right? And career. But here Paul is talking about a calling of character. So both are important. Both are valuable. But notice that Paul thinks of calling in terms of character first before he thinks of it in terms of career. Paul's goal is to remind us that the first calling that the Christian has is not to find his or her particular vocational calling, though that's important and valuable and meaningful and a part of the way that we're supposed to live our lives. But rather, the first and primary calling of the Christian is that to the character of humility, patience, gentleness, and forbearance. So Paul wants us to take on the role of a gentle servant as Christ did. We ought to have a slow fuse One commentator says this, this sort of patience that Paul's talking about involves putting up with life's irritations and the irritable habits of fellow believers. So Paul is at least realistic here and does not assume that everyone will naturally get along in the body of Christ. When Paul says to bear with one another in love, he's recognizing we might get on each other's nerves sometimes and he's calling us to at the very least tolerate one another. And some of us are like, wow, that's good news. I get to tolerate you. So, we can do these things, or we do these things, gentleness, humble, being humble, being patient. We practice these things so that, verse 3, we can make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. So, Don't miss this. The first thing that Paul gets to when he transitions from a theological discourse about the good news of the gospel to now Christian living, the first thing, the primary calling that he gives to the church is that we live in harmony with each other. 
That's the primary thing. He addresses marriage later, relationships, particulars. But in general, the first thing he wants us to get is that unity, harmony with one another, matters most. So, how ought we do this? Well, he says, just be humble. Be completely humble. Be completely patient. Bear with one another in love. Easy peasy. How's that going for you? Isn't it nice that we just have to read a command like verse 2 and then suddenly we can do it? So cool. More on that in a second. Notice that this unity that we're called to, by the way, is not something that we are called to create. God has not said to us, you will be in doing these things, you create the unity. Rather, the unity is already there. We just get to choose to live into it or not. So, commentator says this about this unity. Where are we at? There it is. But the church unity Paul is talking about here is not in the first instance a task to be achieved or an object of aspiration, but a fact given in the gospel, inherent in the nature of the church and its membership, guaranteed by the one spirit who inspires it, the one Lord who governs it, the one God who is the source of its life. So this unity is a fact of reality, and believers are responsible to maintain it and to keep it. And so the question is whether or not you, are, you and I will choose to live into this reality of oneness. Will we choose to recognize and see one another as actual brothers and sisters of Christ who we're going to spend eternity with? Or will I choose to just look at you as a mere acquaintance, a fellow pew-sitter? Since unity and oneness isn't something the body of Christ creates, but something that we live into, how do we then experience this reality? We have to practice things like humility and gentleness and patience. So each of these character qualities are fruits of the Spirit. And there's many more that every single believer who is in Christ has access to. Let me say that again. Every believer in Jesus has access to gentleness, humility, patience, and forbearing with others in love. You have access to realities, to character realities that you did not have access to before you knew Jesus. Do you believe that? Have you sensed that? Have you experienced that? The renewing work of Christ offers the most proud person a humbleness that they could never have walked in before they knew Jesus. The most, important, the most impatient and easily frustrated person has access to a new kind of patience that they never knew before Jesus. Now that said, here's the reality most Christians experience upon following Jesus. They begin following Jesus. They have this subtle uh, taste of gentleness, or maybe it's, maybe it's a lot. They, 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 they experience some of the fruits of the Spirit, gentleness and humility and patience, things that they didn't have before. But as time goes on, Some of those subtle changes in attitude never really grow into the full expression that they thought it would, that Jesus talks about, that Paul tells us, the fullness of Christ. And so many lose sight of these new realities, and they begin to, as they become frustrated again, and impatient, and proud, rather than dealing with those things and choosing to live in a way that would help them grow in those areas, they just begin to kind of suppress their pride. 
just enough to where no one else will see. Or they suppress their impatience. They suppress the harshness in the way that they deal with maybe their family, but they would never let anyone at church know. That's not what we've been called to. Jesus has called us to something much better than that, much sweeter than that. Others of us who experience that initial fervor and passion of following Jesus are like what Jesus talks about in the parable of the sower. They are like the seed that falls on rocky places where it did not have much soil. It sprang up quickly because the soil was shallow, but when the sun came, the plants were scorched and they withered because they had no root. So some just fade away. They feel like they've been sold a a, a batch of goods that wasn't what they thought it was going to be. And so they fade away, they leave the church. Christianity wasn't what I thought it was going to be. But for others of us, for many of us, I would suspect, we learn to, to suppress our impatience or our pride just enough to where we're not, we don't look like complete buffoons to one another, but not in a way to where we're actually beginning to deal with those things. I think many of us have an over-realized view of what happens when we first begin to follow Jesus. We think everything about our character, our desires, and our thoughts are just changed like that. I'm a terrible. There it is. But when we survey the scriptures, when we look at the lives of those who walked with Jesus, do we see this kind of transformation? Obviously, we see people changed quickly, initially, but it's always a journey. It's always a process. The disciples stumbled along as they learned to apprentice their master, Jesus. So how then do I actually grow in humility, in patience, in gentleness, so that I can keep this unity that Paul talks about? Ironically, we're called to practice these things in community, to maintain the unity, in community, to maintain the unity. That was awesome. But we can only grow in these things through community. We have to be in community with one another and be known in order to grow in humility and patience and gentleness. So Paul, he was not only talking about a unity that takes place for two hours on a Sunday morning. Hear me, he literally didn't even have a, that wasn't even a category in his mind for what community looked like. When he talks about tolerating one another for the sake of unity, he's not talking about tolerating someone across the room from you for two hours on a Sunday morning. That's not tolerating. That's just being in the same space. You have very little to do if all it is and all that we're called to is two hours on a Sunday morning and we call that community. That's not community. Paul, Paul didn't even have a category in his mind for that kind of community. He's thinking of people who are known by each other, who spend time together, who break bread together, who are there for one another when life is great, when there's success and things to celebrate, and also when things are hard and there's suffering and pain. So, I want to talk for a moment about unintentional spiritual formation. This is something that we learned a couple, a few weeks back from John Mark Comer over at Bridgetown Church. But the idea is that whether or not we choose to be in community, we are still being formed 
and shaped and molded into something. And we can either choose to be intentional about what that something is, or we can just kind of let it happen to us. So if you're not in community with folks at this local church, and you've been attending for a long time, you are still being shaped and formed into something. They're just not the people here. So on this, author Jamie Smith, he says, Your deepest desire, he observes, is the one manifested by your daily life and habits. This is because our action, our doing, bubbles up from our loves, which, as we've observed, are habits we've acquired through the practices we are immersed in. That means the formation of my loves and desires can be happening under the hood of consciousness. I might be learning to love a telos that I'm not even aware of and that nonetheless governs my life in unconscious ways. So what's he getting at? There's no such thing as Christian spiritual formation. There's just spiritual formation. Whether or not we choose to follow Jesus, we're still being spiritually formed by our habits, our practices, and our rhythms. We're the accumulation of our daily decisions. So you're shaped by the hours that you spend on your phone every morning when you wake up and you check your email or your Instagram or whatever for 20 minutes. Right? That has an effect on you over time, and it begins to shape your desires and your loves. The things that you listen to on your commute, the radio, the news, the podcast, the Netflix shows you watch, the news shows that you watch, the television that you watch every night, we're constantly being formed and shaped by these things. And obviously, the people that we spend time with, our family of origin has the greatest impact on us, the most significant, often the most significant uh, shaping influence in our life is our family of origin. But then as we grow up and we move out of the house, the people that we spend time with, that we associate ourselves with, have an impact on us. And so, many of us are unaware of the way that we're shaped by these things, by these habits, these desires, which is why we need each other in meaningful community. Remember that community does two things for us. It brings exposure and encouragement. Anybody who was married remembers that first year of marriage and how you started to realize, did I, did I just become selfish in the last 12 months? Like, I didn't think I was this kind of person. Or I didn't realize how bad with money I was. Right? It's, it's not that, like, all of a sudden, you just got more selfish or worse with money or more disorganized or less clean. Or It's like you weren't those things to begin with. What helped you see that you were all along, but not until the moment that you got into that meaningful, deep, intimate relationship? We need that with one another. We all need community that's intimate and meaningful so that we can be exposed to our areas of weakness, Right? That's the exposure, but also so that we can be encouraged, so that we can be affirmed in the gifts that we have that God has given us to use for his kingdom. So we need accountability. You actually have to know that you're not as impatient or proud as you thought you were or that you are, I said that wrong, you actually have to know that you 
you're more impatient and proud than you thought you were. And the only way that you're going to become a person who understands that is if you allow other people in to tell you, hey, I see this in you. I think you feel like you're really humble. Maybe not so much. And it's not fun, it's not easy, but it's worth it. Secondly, we need to be willing to enter into smaller clusters of men and women, groups of three men or three women gathering together on a regular basis, what I call triads. Um, I don't know, it's kind of a cheesy way to say it, but it works. But we grow, this is how we grow in grace with one another. We allow each other in on a regular basis to check in. How are we doing? How much time are we spending on our phones? We get to encourage one another about the realities of the gospel that we learned about these last couple of weeks that Paul reminds us of. We exhort each other not only just in thinking, right, and our understanding of what God has done, which is a part of what we're called to, but also in the gospel works. Hey, stop asking yourself how much I've sinned or how I cannot sin as much and start asking yourself, how am I bringing about the kingdom of God this week? Two totally different things. Triads are where we begin to carefully discern together in what ways my city that I live in, my phone, or the stories that my culture tells me, in what ways have those things got into my head and how have they began to shape me and form me? It's way too hard to do that on your own, and you're always going to be easier on yourself. We all are. We need each other to be able to see ourselves truly. So in closing, I want to read a lengthy quote from Bonhoeffer, but I think it's really good. Bonhoeffer talks about how we see each other in Christ. And this is what he writes about Jesus and you and me and our relationships with one another. He says that Jesus stands between us and God. And for that very reason, he stands between us and all other men and things. He is the mediator, not only between God and man, but between man and man, between man and reality. Since the whole world was created through him and unto him, he is the sole mediator in the world. The call of Jesus teaches us that our relation to the world has been built on an illusion. All the time we thought we had enjoyed a direct relation with men and things, this is what had hindered us from faith and obedience. Now we learn that in the, mit, in the most intimate relationships of life, in our kinship with father and mother, brothers and sisters, in married love, and in our duty to the community, direct relationships are actually impossible. Since the coming of Christ, his followers have no more immediate realities of their own, not in their family relationships, nor in the ties with their nation, nor in the relationships formed in the process of living. Between father and son, husband and wife, the individual and the nation, stands Christ, the mediator, whether they are able to recognize him or not. We cannot establish direct contact outside ourselves except through him, through his word, and through our following of him. 
To think otherwise is to deceive ourselves. There is no way from one person to another. There is no way from one person to another. However loving and sympathetic we try to be, however sound our psychology, however frank and open our behavior, we cannot penetrate the incognito of the other man, for there are no direct relationships, not even between soul and soul. Christ stands between us, and we can only get into touch with our neighbors through him. That is why intercession is the most promising way to reach our neighbors and corporate prayer offered in the name of Christ, the purest form of worship or fellowship. What's he getting at? You think about um, your legal standing with God, right? I may know in my heart, or maybe in my mind rather, that Jesus calls me righteous. He calls me his son. There's no shame and no guilt. But do I still feel shame and guilt sometimes? Yes. And you could come up to me and say and remind me, there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ. Does my guilt immediately feel gone? No. But I, I cling to what I know is true. I cling to the reality that despite my feeling, Jesus has called me his son. He has called me righteous and good. Do I always feel like looking at you or, or you or you as my brother or sister in Christ? Not always. But what is true of you is that you are my brother and you are my sister. That we actually are a family. And so despite what I feel, I choose to cling to what God has said is true. What I know is real is what God says is real. I think often we see ourselves in relationship to Jesus. It's like a Where's Waldo uh, drawing or book. You know, like you, you see this and there's just, it's like they fit a thousand little people onto one page and you got to find Waldo. It's like often I feel like we go about our relationships and it's, Maybe if we happen to, to spot Jesus for just a minute, you know, we, we happen to see him, then I'm going to treat you like I ought to, like he would treat you. But usually, I just don't see Jesus there, and so I choose not to, to treat you as I ought. I choose not to see you as my brother or sister in Christ, when the reality is that Jesus stands between us. He is the mediator between us, that we have to choose to view ourselves as brothers and sisters in Christ, or we stand no chance at keeping and maintaining the unity we've been called to. And so one, one just very practical thing I want to encourage you towards, rather than when you have a disagreement with someone in this church, a brother or sister in Christ, Rather than going quickly to judgment and frustration, what if you move towards a place of wonder to ask, I wonder why they think that? Where are they coming from? What's their starting place? What experiences have they been through that would cause them to feel this way? And a place of compassion, right? But both of those things are things that Jesus and his lens on how he sees us, only if we can see him in between you and me, we'll be able to do that. 
So the litmus test in community should not be, have I done a good job of withholding my frustration and therefore not shown my impatient attitude? Right? That's not the win in following Jesus in community. The litmus test is, what have I done to contribute to this body to maintain the unity that we're called to maintain? That's the test. Not have I negative, have I done, have I stopped myself from doing something I know I shouldn't? But what am I doing to practice humility and patience and gentleness? Right? It says, make every effort to keep the unity. This is, this is something you do. It's not something that you refrain from. It's something that you proactively do. This word that Paul uses, this is to guard something, to fight, to keep it. It's a strong language that he's using. So lastly, two quick thoughts. God's presence, the Holy Spirit, is always connected to any command or any practice or any character quality that you and I are called to in, in the scriptures. So I want to encourage you, seek his presence. Don't just try to be completely humble all of a sudden. You will fail. In the same way that you wouldn't try to go run 26 miles tomorrow because there's a marathon you want to compete in. You would train. You'd start off running one mile one week, two miles the next, three miles, right? You'd work your way up to it so that it becomes for you something that is still hard. Running a marathon is never easy, but it's possible. So it is with being completely humble or gentle or patient, or bearing with one another in love. You just go try to do it, all of a sudden, it's probably going to be discouraging. And you'll go back to just suppressing your impatience, your pride, and so on. So train your butt off. Remember, though, that it is the good news of Christ on the cross that is your hope. You're not, training is not opposed, what is it? Effort is not opposed to grace? Yes. Effort is not opposed to grace. We can try. We can work. We can train. We can practice. That's not the antithesis to the gospel and receiving his grace. His grace still covers us. We're still called, though, to practice and to train. And lastly, just remember, what is the ultimate purpose of this unity that we're called to? Is it for us? Is unity, does Jesus call us towards unity so that we here in the church would just have a better experience going through the Christian life? Oh, it's for the world. Our unity is so that others might see and know that God is real and that he is good. When other people see us practicing humility, gentleness, and patience towards one another, that will woo them. But we have to actually be doing it with, with each other before we welcome them into it. Amen? Would you pray with me? Father, I love you. Thank you for this opportunity to, to just look into your word in Ephesians. and It's a rich book. There's so much going on. I pray that you would use these things to form us and shape us so that we might, towards the end of this series, feel a little bit more like a real family.
so that when I feel frustrated about the music or, or uh, the way that someone addresses me or, or whatever it is, what offense comes up, that I would be able to see that Jesus stands between us as the one who, who brings about true and full relationship. That I wouldn't be so quick to go towards judgment and frustration, but God, that I would move towards compassion and wonder as I deal with my brother and sister who I will spend eternity with. Would you give us a mind to see that that reality, to not overlook or, or think that this is just some acquaintance. But God, would you help us to become a family of believers committed to one another in deep, meaningful community so that the world may know that you are good. So that lost souls would begin to experience and taste the peace and grace and forgiveness of Christ. In Jesus' name, amen. We desire to be formed by the Word of God in community. If you have questions about this week's sermon, we would love to hear from you. For more information about our church, please visit centralbible.church.